fine, we're going to go live now and everyone can see it. That's because I scrolled so far. <laughs> In fact, we're live now, which is nice. But uh, don't worry, I'm going to check this. People are going to start appearing imminently, which is nice. Uh, I'm going to click that button. Which means we're all... Yeah, I think that's it. It says live in 23 hours. <laughs> well, there we go. Oh, people are... We've already got Roaming Adocrat in. Excellent. So, to, so that people right. see what's going on. Do they hear us? Yeah, they, they can hear us. They can hear us both. Hey! Hello, Matt. Hello, Roaming Adocrat. Hello. Uh, this is going to be... Yeah, wait a minute. So, you should be now... Dr. David Turner, who we have as a guest... Hooray! Um, hello. So, I'm, uh, yeah, that's it. Everyone's like live in 23. <laughs> yeah. I still can't get my head around that bit. Uh, no, you're not, you're not early. It's just like glitch. Yeah, don't, don't worry about it, everyone. 1901. Yeah, there we go. We're definitely here. We're definitely here. Look at this. Oh, I'm excited. Uh, hello, everyone. Um, Welcome. Definitely. So who's, who've we got? We've got, um, oh, we've already got, the, got some of the usual suspects that can hear us both, nice and clear, lovely. I've got new batteries, everyone, just in case the, uh, the mic disappears midway through. Uh, batteries, it's good, because I've got, I've got my lapel mic, which I find quite clear. And Dr. David Turner and I, have, we have liquid refreshment. Oh, I'm drinking, um, actually, I used to not be a huge BrewDog fan, but I am now... Bearing in mind they're my local brewery, essentially, from where I grew up. Where they're at. It's a Dead Pony Club brew dog. Right, okay. Which is actually a sensational beer. Much as I yeah. don't want it to be, because I'm not... I didn't use... Brew dog, I mean, still are run by not, not very great um, humans. But uh, they're getting... Their attitude to the mainstream beer uh, industry, and particularly the mainstream, or, or kind of camera, for example, was not like particularly nice. The campaign for real ale. Well, camera, camera. To be fair, actually threw them out of a, a British beer festival after inviting them, and Brewdog had set up their stand. Well, I think, I think they nearly set up their stand, or they were due to, or something. There was a kerfuffle. I don't really. Know. It's interesting. Yeah. That is interesting. Um, oh gosh, we could get lost, couldn't we? We we could totally so, just get lost. So just to put, just to carry it on, everybody. <laughs> Yeah, let's see. Ansbach and Hog Day's Pale Ale. Mm. I'm a big fan of this brewery. You can buy their beer online. Um, but I'm drinking that. I'm a devotee. I've got a special glass. So. Hooray. Um, oh, it, it's, it's nice. It's nice. Um, people are commenting on the fact that this is why the railways moved to GMT. Uh, Simon uh, has, a, has a glass of wine. All, all drinks are welcome. All Soft, drink, hard. All, all if anyone's, if any kids are out there, you can have a nice glass of juice or some chocolate milk or just water, actually. Uh, so, so the breweries in the early, uh, in the 19th century used to sell something called family ale. <laughs> right for your breakfast. <laughs> have it with your cornflakes. Um, Ian Huxbull, hello. Nice to see you. Hello, Michael C. Good to see you. Uh, Bjarne as well. Oh, I've got all the... Everyone's confused as to the stream start time, but hopefully they're following it anyway. You're, you're all following it anyway. Milan Z has, 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 um, has their water bottle. Terrific. I think we're going right. Okay. So, hello, everyone. We've got 33 of you with us. Uh, we've, we're three minutes in. We've already been yammering away. Uh, I'm very pleased to say that this is episode five. So that's the fifth episode of... No, the sixth episode. Sorry. It's episode five, the sixth episode of Rail Natter. I started at zero, David. I don't know why. Um, like King's Cross. 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's a King's Cross reference. Um, I'm very pleased to have with me, I'm very excited actually, we've got Dr. David Turner, my very good friend, my dear friend Dr. David Turner has joined us for this, uh, this week's episode. Here he is. He knows about all sorts of things, but the theme that we decided to pick for this chat, because I'm sure we'll have David back, uh, is beer. You know, because in this difficult time, some of us have to resort to alcohol to get through. Don't do this at home, kids. Right. Anyway, so um, yeah, we're going to talk about we're going to talk about beer. Um, mm-hmm. To be honest, uh, we've already done a bit of an intro. We've chatted away already quite a bit, um, and uh, I think everyone's saying following the people. Yeah, we're as you can see, David and I are social distancing by not two meters, but two hundred miles. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I'll tell you what. Without further ado, let's kick off with the the yeah, titles. That's... Let's do it. Here we go, it's Rail Natter. Um, and uh, here we go. Let's get our faces up. You guys, you can see uh, my producer has actually produced the right, has uh, edited the credits correctly this time, so that David's name and the correct episode card number appeared. Um, my producer being me, of course. Uh, and and here he is. Look, it's an orange thing that says Dr. David Turner on it. It's very high tech. No expense spared. Um, Garrett. Yeah. I'm looking at the feed, and I can only see real matter. Uh, oh, really? You should be appearing fine. Well, I'll tell you what. We'll s- people shout at us if it doesn't work. So the feed, no, the feed is behind. Yeah, you're working. You're there. The feed's about, there's about 30 seconds latency. So you'll be on the feed and it looks behind, but actually it's because it takes 30 seconds to get wired into the pipes of the internet. I know, right? It's a bit weird. Um, uh, Yeah, people are laughing at the fact that this time I kept the titles up to date. Right, okay, let's get on with the presentation. Um, We've we've done our helloing. Any questions so far? What is the maximum cant you can have on a train without spilling your beer? Actually, it's not about cant, it's about cant deficiency and how much cant deficiency you have. And actually, it's not even about that, it's about jerk. So it's about the rate of change of cant deficiency through the transition is how you spill your beer. Because you can have as much cant or not cant as you like, so long as it stays the same. Anyway, we digress. Uh, So, right, for goodness sake, poor David just wants to talk about beer. uh, And we're digressing and I'm talking about cant. (laughs) So, right. I can't talk about cant. Oh, here we go. It started. And the puns. Oh, yes. Right, let's get get our faces next to each other and uh, let's kick off. So, um, in fact, okay, we're going to have some news to start with. Yes. Um, First things first, Heritage Railways. We both love Heritage Railways, and they're all struggling with uh, COVID at the moment. Lockdown means that people aren't visiting them. It means people can't be there to maintain them, get on with projects. Um, they don't have the same status the Network Rail does to do all the vital uh, infrastructure upgrades they need or you know, train upgrade, rolling stock sort of uh, maintenance they can do. So they're all struggling. So if you've got a local Heritage Railway, check how they're doing. If you can help out in any way, please do. Um, I think the Heritage Railway map's going to look very different at the end of this year, and it's quite sad. Um, uh, yes, that's, so that's number one uh, news article. Number two, HS2. Uh, it finally had notice to proceed that should have been delivered about a year ago. It went out today. Um, but more interestingly than that is that with, the, with notice to proceed, a, a business case document came out that included a load of pretty stats, um, all of which fall a bit short, but never mind. But they're a good start. They're a starting point. 
Um, so some interesting stuff to sink your teeth into. Um, and for anyone watching the feed who doesn't know anything about HS2, we're not going to dwell on it because we're talking about beer today. But um, check out my um, YHS2 stuff on YouTube or Twitter. So, right, that's the news out of the way. Um, we've got a picture of Wetmore Road Maltings here. Mm. Uh, yeah. So if, I think, firstly, it's useful to... If, if it's all right, Gareth, I'll just mm. set a little bit of context to what how, how my interest in beer came about. Um, I teach the MA in Railway Studies at University of York, and I do it, you know, I research as well. And I was... Well, I thought... What are my two interests? Let's have a Venn diagram of interest. So it was, uh, it was beer and rail. And, and actually, so I'm going to, where is it? There's, a, there's a, a book that I've got somewhere around here, which is um, Terry Gurvish and Richard Wilson's book on the history of the brewing industry. And of course, if anybody knows the name Terry Gurvish, he was a railway, he wrote the official history of British Rail, Strategic Rail Authority, um and other things uh big railway historian but he also went into beer so i decided to follow him it was a career trajectory clearly and i decided to in their book there's not much about beer and railways Mm. and and transport i think it's important to think about transport because from a brewer's perspective then their their concern is access or getting their things to market Mm. It's easy for a lot of railway histories through time, through you know, have, have focused on the very much sort of technological, organisational stuff about the companies or the yeah. organisations. But increasingly, what we're doing in transport history is moving towards the idea of looking at the user. And what became clear is, firstly, distribution of transports in the book, but it's not given its sort of dues. But also, or it's not it, it's a wide range of books, so it can't. Yeah, it's only got so much scope. There's only so much that Terry could cover. Yeah, yeah so I thought, well, what's this relationship? Because you all heard the story about St Pancras and how the beer was underneath uh, St Pancras and the flows of beer and Burton beer. But actually, what was the relationship between breweries and railways and, by extension, transport? So I, I put in an application for a small, a very small piece of funding to go and research this, the Business Archives Council Research Grant. And thank you for, the, for that, uh, everyone there. Fund your academics, people. Yeah. And uh, so I, I was asked, well, I, I won. I, I was very graced and happy to have won. And uh, I went away and researched the relationship between beer and railways, predominantly in the 19th and early 20th century, before the First World War. Um, and that that was so, such hard visits to the National Brewery Centre. Oh, dreadful! Such hard it's work. Such a horrible, horrible, <laughs> horrible place. And, you know, you go down at lunch, and you know, there's things to drink like pop, but you know. Anyway. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so that so that kind of led you into. Why I came to this subject in more than just oh, I like beer on trains. Definitely. Um, oh, we've got loads of questions already coming through, actually, which I. I will, um, uh, oh, they're telling me not to say anything too loudly because I'm too, uh, wait a minute, I can fix that a little bit. I can shut myself up a bit. Uh, how's this, everyone? Is that better? I've put myself down to 67%. So if I put that up, yeah, there we go. How's that, yeah. everyone? You're fine. I think you're fine. If you speak, you keep speaking fine. I've just turned myself down okay. a bit. That should help. So, so the, 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 the image that I think, one of the things, actually, that transport history would be 
you know, we're always evolving. History isn't fixed as a discipline. We're always sort of evolving our knowledge and our understanding. And, you know, in periods of uh, sort of 60 years ago, 50 years ago, history was written differently as it is now, interpretation of documents. And I think one of the things that has increasingly come through is this idea of recently, this idea of looking at transport history as sort of the flows of stuff across transport systems. And one of the things there is actually to look at the supply chain. So, of course, beer has four critical ingredients and uh, water being one of them. Uh, oh, uh, do you want me to pop the next slide, actually? Because there's things yeah. I said, there's the next slide has like the breakdown, yeah. doesn't it? We can, we can go, we can go. Yeah, yeah. Okay, go, go ahead, Gareth. Yeah, the next one. We can flip, we can flip between the two. Right, here we go. Let's, uh, let's do that. There we go. Yeah, so we, I, I devised this, or I hope it's coming through okay. Um, this is the, the brewery supply chain. And, of course, you've got uh, – this is sort of in about 1900, we'll say. It's quite complex, so I won't you know, take you through every dimension, but there's hops, um, a large proportion about, about sort of the end of the 19th century, uh, about a third of all British hop, uh, sorry, hops used in British brewing have come from overseas, Germany, but uh, California, um, places in, in the United States imported barley a lot of barley farmers particularly were annoyed at the railways because of the railway rates they said were too high they couldn't access the same rates as imported grain and importing goods so there's a whole conversation there about sort of control and mechanisms and, and restrict how, how railway practices might restrict economic growth and change but uh, you've got barley that goes to the maltings uh, and those could be private maltings that are at, you know, uh, at somewhere where you've got a malting company or a lot of breweries own their own and had them next to them. And then once the beer is brewed, beer could go a number of ways to the private bottler, uh, in the case of Whitbread, to their own bottling depots and stores, where it could go to export, a very small amount of export in the period we're talking about, sort of 19th century, and then to the public house. So there's this whole integrated supply chain. We're not going to talk about it all in detail. But it's important to get that. I suppose it's important to get the complexity of that supply chain across. And Yeah, because you've got restrictive factors along it. You've got sort of so, – so a good one is, is the hops. And hops are fascinating for a number of reasons. The railways, of course, conveyed uh, – Kent is the big hop fields of Britain in this mm. period. It's a place of uh, very considerable um, – poverty that area hop farming was seen as a one of the worst off farmers you know in, in britain at the time or it, it was it was it was not seen well and actually the railways conveyed every year they conveyed people from the east end of london um down to kent in on hop farmers try hop pickers trains and these people lived in really poor conditions um they uh, got typhus they got um, loads of horrible diseases and there were campaigns to improve the conditions so the railways you know in terms of mobility moving the people out there but hops coming in the southeastern and london chatham and dover railways actually conspired to keep the rates at a certain level so that the hop farmers had to pay uh, a certain amount to send their beer uh, sort of hops to borough where you've got a lot of hop factors what we call them hop factors they're like merchants and, and sellers oh, okay, and yeah. yeah yeah and 
this was a bone of contention. There were two royal commissions on hop farming, one in 1890 and one in 1908, and railway rates come through as an issue, one of the issues. Um, restricted. So there we got the railway as an actor that is actually arguably, and it needs more research, depressing the fortunes of, of all the different people along it. So, and, and the hop farmers try and actually send hops by boat round from Kent down the Thames to really? Bur- yeah um, it doesn't work <laughs> and eventually the southeastern and the London Chatham and Dover uh, go at odds at each other so um, uh, so it's it's an interesting story that I need to delve into but there we see the railway playing a very critical role in the negotiation or the, or the way that it works uh, the way that the pricing and cost now pricing of beer because actually uh, the hot farmers in the 1890 commission say okay these rates are pushing up our costs by a third um british hops to purchase wholesale or from the borough market merchants was a third higher than it was the american hops american hop farmers had surplus so immediately there you can see the price the railway putting up the price of a pint of beer. Interesting. So we've so got, so actually Simon Fisher points out that he, he remembers, um, or rather, so he says the hop picking trips continued into the 60s and mm. his grandfather was a head brewer in London and used to visit the hop farms, which is really yeah. interesting. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting story. I think it needs to be unpacked a bit more. The railways didn't like them, these trains. Uh, they, they, they had a very, especially in the 19th century, which is my specialism, they had a sort of very patronizing very they used to disinfect the carriages after um this might be a little later but they used to disinfect them because they thought these people were so poverty stricken from the east end they must carry disease with them yeah well vermin and you know yeah yeah yeah, stuff like that so it's you know railway carriage and travel is very much classed and influenced by victorian uh, perceptions of class, perceptions of gender, perceptions of... So you've got all these different multiple layers in that. Anyway, so if we think about the tra- supply chain, that's important. But also, I think um, another factor is governance. Now, governance is a really interesting question. There is a concept in supply chain that's come through in supply chain management currently where companies are looking to negate... Um, if you think about, say, Nike they are looking to negate the possibility of scandal by governing their supply chain. So making sure they understand what's going along at all different parts. I think we could apply this idea to the past, supply chains in the past, because who has governance over different parts actually influences how much they pay, who they pay it to. So the hop farmer would have to pay to send their goods to market. So that's immediately a disincentive. But if it was the factor or the merchant to pay to buy them in, then that cost is lost. The hop farmer has a larger profit. So governance actually plays an important role. Ah. Um, the factor then sends... Now, I'm not really sure on those people. I'm, I'm going to be a bit... The factor then sends it on to the brewer, and the brewer has governance from there on, except when they're sending it to, as we got here, merchants and agents who might sell the beer on then to free houses, to... Music halls who yeah, might okay, yeah. bottle beer. 
And we'll talk a bit more about bottled beer later. So, yeah. So that's, that's sorry, I've, I've rambled a bit, but I, 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 I hope that has... Yeah, yeah, clear- no, it's, I, think it's, I think it's important to break this down. It's a bit of context. We're talking about this for, you know, another 45 minutes. So it's important that people get... I think it's useful to understand. It's, it's a point you make that the, the, the railways are often... We're very good at thinking about everything from when the, the thing arrives on the platform to when it leaves the platform. We're not necessarily very good at thinking about mm-hmm. the bigger picture. Um, yeah. And that's as I, true today as it is in terms of the way that we perhaps historians have looked at the railways in the past. Yeah. I, I think, yeah, I mean, I think we'll talk about it a bit in a minute about sort of actually how the railways treated the beer. Yeah. Because it's, yeah. it's an interesting. So what's the next slide, Gareth? Yeah. So I'll pop, do, you want me to talk, do you want me to pop to the previous one at all? Um, no, that was just, that was a Maltings in Burton. That was owned by Bass, I think. Um, and that just shows, actually, the railway is integral to that picture because, you know, you've got malt uh, either coming down or going up on the right-hand side. You've got railways. the rail, And we'll talk a bit more about Bass, you know, Burton's relationship with the railway, which was enduring and long and defines our vision of beer by rail, I think. But, yeah, so that's just, you know, that's they use the bridge. Yeah, and, and, and it's so important Burton's, to note that you can see there's some nice bullhead rail there yeah. with some classic cast iron chairs just uh, well, Bass, you know. Bass opened uh, Maltings at Sleaford uh, the year escapes me and then they have this big fight with the Great Eastern Railway the Sleaford's towards the east they put it they decided to put it in that spot because that was near the the, the barley fields and the grain fields and then they could malt it at Sleaford and send it to Burton but they had a fight with the Great Eastern Railway um because they said to the Great Eastern, in my own Great Eastern, Great Northern, it depends who's got the, um, the, the the running rights. But they had a bit of a fight because they said, Bass said, all right, if you don't give us a better rate, we'll, we'll actually send it by boat. We'll send, we'll send it out. I, I, I might be misremembering that slightly, but we know that a lot of ingredients came up um, up through the river. The name escapes me. Burton on Trent. It was yep. the Trent. Yes, of course. Um, yeah, on the, the various Trent navigations to. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay. And, right, and, right. Constant time. Let's let's hop on to this picture here. Yeah. Oh, in fact, before we press on, let's go through some questions. Um, and tell me, David, if you think we're going to answer this question later on. Um, in fact, a couple of people, included David, including David Shearers, who's with us. Hello, David. Nice to see you. Um, are asking about sort of volumes. Uh, I, I don't know how easy it is to a- answer this question sort of uh, fairly quick, succinctly. But in the heyday, so at its peak, uh, what was the volume of beer-related rail transport uh, compared to other com- major commodities? So do, do you have like a percentage of, of overall freight it's, traffic that was beer-related? It's exceedingly hard, I would argue, to... Um, pin down a number and the reason is we just don't know how much was going by beer uh, by rail anyway oh, it's, okay. it's it's a really hard uh so that the archives have not survived we have like absolute numbers of goods that were c- carried by uh the railways that was uh, ordered uh, by the board of trade i was gonna say the board of trade kept that data but in terms of relative percentages it's more difficult yeah it? so I'm trying to get up a picture here, um, and I can't do it, but we're talking a, an awful lot of beer. So so to give you an idea, Bass was the world's largest railway customer. It oh, was it was literally the world's largest railway customer. It was the largest single railway customer. Wow. 
in the 19th century, mid-19th century. Um, just because of the sheer volume and because of the nature of its business, which fundamentally was a, a business that um, uh, was totally almost reliant on the railways. Mm. Very, and, and had a national business, and a nationwide business. So it was the world's largest uh, largest business uh, by by a good country mile. So relied on the railways, yeah, incredible. Yeah, and yeah. and this is why the Midland actually had a bass director on its board. Uh, from oh, wow. so so Matt Reed is asking uh, about beer going by rail now. Um, I don't know if it does in the UK. Is there any zero zero? Pretty much. I, the only thing I could think of, I was trying to answer this question in my head um, is probably. The Tesco trains. Ah, yeah, good point. Because they inadvertently will be carrying beer just because it. Yeah, I had a fear. I have a, I have a thought that they might have some Brewdog on there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Interesting. So that's that's all, and we'll talk about actually the transition from rail to road a bit later. No, um, okay, right. I'll I'll come back to some other questions. And um, p- uh, folks who are on the in the in the chat, feel free to just ask again if I've missed your question. Uh, apologies. I've, I've got three. Uh, you might remember from last time. I have to kind of bounce around a bit more when I've got a guest on. So uh, apologies if I miss you. Just ask the question again. Um, yeah. So right, let's yeah let's uh, chat about this one then. This picture. Uh, I see what I see here are uh, there's some lovely yeah. uh, architecture, but I also see MR, which is the Midland Railway. So Midland Railway was the, there were actually four railway companies serving uh, Burton. So this is Burton upon Trent, hmm. and, and the reason I put this here is Burton, of course, developed this huge network of private railways in the nineteenth century. Um, Bass, I think, had around don't quote me on this, but forty miles of, of brewery uh, railway itself. Wow! In Burton, because it had three breweries, it had uh, three separate breweries and maltings in Burton. Ah, uh-huh, okay. So. Bass, um, one of the defining features of Burton is is the water. It's got mineral-rich water. It means you can actually brew lighter uh, pale ales. So, so actually, this is a good example. That sort of colour of beer, that is, uh, a, a, should we say, a Burton-style beer, maybe a bit lighter than it would be. We, I think the beer we now most associate is something like London Pride um, or a, a bitter. Um and what this allowed this Bass's beer. So, so one of the things that railway historians, sort of the transport historians, tried to emphasise is that the railways didn't come, didn't really create many industries. But Burton beer was known for its its clarity, its 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 beautiful colour, its mm. its nice taste um, before the railways arrived. But it took like three weeks to get to London. It cost like <laughs> four weeks to get to London. It was an elite. Uh, a very elite drink, mm. uh, and of course, anybody who's worked with cast beer knows it goes off yep. pretty quickly. You, once you tap the barrel, but three weeks on the road, it would cost. So the railway comes to Burton in 1839, and this gives it a link to London. Now, in London, of course, the big porter breweries, brewing porter, they used to have like pewter tankards. They weren't very; it wasn't very attractive. Yeah. London Porter, again, another Fuller's beer, actually is a good example. And it's nice beer. I like it. Um, I have to be in the mood. Um, but oh, London Porter is is one of my favourite beers, don't get me wrong. But suddenly there's this influx of Bass beer. And the reason is Bass is 
able to access cheaper and quicker the London market. So suddenly, over the 19th century, Bass's market share within London, which scares the local brewers, uh, you know, it, it grows at a rapid rate. Mm. Um, it starts to sort of level off because in the what the London brewers try and do is they try and replicate Bass beer or the the, the Burton style of beer because there are a lot of breweries in but you know there's Worthingtons the the Bur the interestingly named Burton Beer Company. Mm. Really worked on that name for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. really original. Um, clearly slaved over it. You just imagine the marketers all sat there with their stovepipe hats going, yeah. I see, why, why, why do we call it the Burton Beer Company? All right, uh, Jeff. And then everyone name. goes, by Jove, he's got it. And just like all nodding enthusiastically. Yeah. But, yeah. The, but the, the result of this, and it's not just London, it's, it's a national trade. I mean, about I think uh, about a third of all, you know, uh, of Bass's output went to London. If I could find those statistics, I'd be able to give you a, a, a precise number. It might be a little bit higher. People can pass you on Twitter uh, afterwards, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It may be something I'll do something, you know, something on it. But it 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 means that Bass there's this immense pressure. So it's Bass doesn't really have a tied house trade. So the London brewers would use horse and dray to deliver to a network of tied houses. Um, they they would be a, it would be a local operation so bass doesn't really have that um and guinness of course also in dublin uses transport networks in a similar way guinness, guinness i think had like two pubs one was the staff club and another one was elsewhere i can't remember they used the railway in ireland to spread their network that's what that's one of the reasons guinness is so or was so dominant in ireland uh, because of the railway bass is a similar thing it uses a network of agencies principally supplied by rail what this means is that as that net as that sort of integration with the railway network comes um the network within the bass the brewery complexes grows and grows and grows so that they can take beer from uh, the malt from malt house to brewery to and then the brewery went out uh, the beer went out and sort of in the 1890s there were Oh, I think it must be about three or four trains a day ended up at St Pancras. So, you know, I might have I got that. Sorry, I should have swatted up on some facts. But the, the beer trade going out of Burton is, is absolutely it's massive. It's colossal. It's just, it's enormous. It's colossal. As, as we said before, it's the largest, um, it's the largest railway customer in the world by the late 19th century. Yeah. To the extent that the, the railway companies actually uh, have something called Burton Agreement, now that sounds a bit uh, dubious and pooling a group. Oh, two or three companies to fix, should we say, fix rates or divide the divide the uh, spoils from a, a certain place? You know, the traffic between X and Y along a certain proportion were quite common. There was something called the Burton Agreement between the London's uh, the railways serving London and uh, sorry serving Burton, and they divided traffic up, the, the, the revenues from that between them. Actually, I've just found what I was looking for. I know, so to you've, give you you've an idea, out a bit. Your internet clearly was loading something big because you, you dropped out and I thought we'd lost you. Yeah. You, got, you came back and oh, sorry, we're, we're good. Sorry. So to give you an example, in the year ending June 1874, breweries accounting years ended in June in the 19th century. Don't ask me why. <laughs> um, the 
total barrels forwarded by rail by bass was 820,613. 35% of that went to London. So, good grief. So you're talking the best part of a good chunk of nearly a million barrels. Yeah, and it gets and up How often to, was that? Was that a week, did you say? Over a million by the late 19th, by the, you know, late 19th century. Did you say that was a week? That was that was not in a week. That was in a year. Oh, okay. I was going to say, right, okay. So a mil- so the best part of a million barrels in a, in a year. So this this industrial, this industrial network goes up in 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 Burton, and it's interesting. You you talk to people from Burton now, and uh, it's really fascinating. They will talk about how um, they remember waiting in their cars in the sixties for this these trains to go past the early sixties, or even earlier in the fifties, just because there were so many wagons going mm. through the through the town. So. Right, uh, two things. The first is that um, uh, Simon Fisher, uh, again, is, is bringing us much uh, interesting points, which is that Guinness's route to London was through the Park Royal Brewery, which at its peak was the largest brewery in the world, apparently. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, St. James's Gate. I mean, Park Royal was the, the sort of second site, if I recall, and it, 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 was, it was distributing a lot of beer. It was a huge brewery. Um, Guinness, I mean... <sighs> I'm not entirely sure, but Guinness would also say there was a, 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 a joke that the best Guinness in the world was in Liverpool because they could <laughs> send it across by yeah, steamer. Yeah. Um, and I think Guinness used multiple sort of distribution networks from two breweries. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, second point. In fact, I've got three points. So not the second point is that I've moved on to my second um, most of what I've got is the same as the first, but this one is a is a little beer. It's quite good actually. It's Red Rye Captain Pale Ale, nice and cheap. This is a quid. Very tasty as well actually. Um, right, so um, Simon Fisher is pointing useful, pointing out useful that a barrel is two hundred and eighty eight pints. So what's yes. that? Wait a minute. Let's let's do two hundred two hundred eighty eight multiplied by eight hundred thousand is big party. Oh, that's two hundred and thirty. That's 230 million pints a year. There yeah. You go. There's some numbers. Crikey. Anyway, uh, right, we're massively behind schedule already. I love All it. All right. Um, let's hammer through. Right, okay, so the next one. We'll, we'll go a bit of a pace. Well, that's, we'll that's the, the middle So that, that one's a lot of what I've just talked about. You can see the action there, loading beer in barrel. And that open cast, uh, open sort of wagon system, mm. which, wagon load traffic, which... The breweries didn't really like it. Um, at the start of the period, I think sort of 1840s, 50s, 60s, it was no better than the alternative. 70s go through and uh, the breweries start, you know, they, they start getting concerned. I mean, one of the big problems that the breweries faced in this period and actually into the interwar period is damage and pilferage. Mm. One of the big objections when the railways um, are facing off against road transport and we'll talk a little bit about that in, in a bit, uh, is that if you've got governance over the supply chain, so if you've got control over how your beer moves, you can move it uh, more securely, you know it's not being pilfered. And I've been through and looked at cases of beer being... Okay, I'll tell you I'll, I'll tell you one brilliant case. Um, some beer went missing, I think, from a station in South Wales, and they didn't know where it went. Um 
and uh, they turned they turned up and uh, found it on the beach nearby, just sitting there. So the the the, the, the police from the state the railway um, and the local police decided to wait and see who turned up, and then twelve sailors turned up. <laughs> These twenty four police fa- faced off against. Uh, 12 sailors and, and most of them were, apart from one or two were arrested but the point there is that the beer went missing and actually a lot of the time why the reason the beer went missing was because actually railway workers would, would indulge um, there was a guy who was found with a screw um, a screw yeah yeah like a, to, to, to go into the barrel yeah. like a drill to oh, and dear. He got stuck it was a railway member of staff. So there was this, and, and actually, between the wars, Whitbread, who was the world's biggest bottler of beer just before the First World War, stopped sending beer. There's this great file in the National Archives from the 50s, where, of, sorry, late 40s, where Whitbread goes, we're not sending beer by you anymore, um, because during the interwar years, we had so many bottles pilfered. Now, they did send it in, bar- in barrel, you know, in tank, but they didn't send it in bottle. So this is a big issue that the, the system that the railways put in place is progressively seen as not fit for purpose, not fit for the secure and effective delivery of the um, the beer. And one of the things is uh, beer, especially towards the late 19th century, gets actually pale and running ales. They are time sensitive and a lot of breweries complain or consider that, you know, we need this beer to get there on time. Beer would go into the system of the railways and just vaporize. And we're not talking about Burton because Burton had sort of quite solid arrangements. Smaller breweries like... Um, yeah, they uh, have less buying power, I suppose. They, they yeah. could get pushed around a bit more. They are just a regular customer, whereas Bass in Burton had a special arrangement with mm. the Midland, a special agreement. Yeah. So you, you, you get that sense from smaller breweries that actually they're really not happy. Yeah. So Right. Uh, okay, so... Ah, here we go. So we've gone from these quite nice pictures, actually. I quite like these um, little sketches. Yeah, yeah. Now we've gone to, uh, to to a photograph, in fact. This is 1920s or 30s, so that's Worthington. So just another picture. Again, it shows you actually how the system hadn't really moved on uh, in 40 years or so. Um, and that's that's actually the perception. The railways had not changed what they did and how they did it yeah yeah, yeah the contrast isn't it like you just look at these two pictures they're the 40 contrast between the two yeah well there isn't much it's just the same one's a photograph yeah. and one's a hand sketch yeah and, um, and the, the 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 very real sense in the railway in the, the brewing industry is that actually these are two uh these are this is an industry that is um generally not serving our, our needs and we'll talk about road transport because that's that's actually a very interesting subsequent uh, side story to this yeah, yeah. um i mean the burton brewers stay with rail much longer because their networks uh in burton locks them in to the rail transport in, in a sort of path dependent way um so yeah so um in, okay so a few people are pointing some stuff out um uh, there's some good maths going on in the uh, chat, which I'm enjoying. <laughs> there's people bouncing around um, various sort of scale statistics about beer. Yeah, interesting. Um, Simon is point- Simon Zev Kendall is pointing out that um, Carlsberg Brewery in Valby was built above the main. Re- Sorry, I pronounced that in a very English way. 
in Carlsberg Brewery in Vialby was built above the main railway line out of Copenhagen. Uh, the good quality water was discovered during the railway works and they built a siding to connect the brewery. Oh, that's, that's interesting. And then John Christoph is um, highlighting how uh, it just all sounds very familiar. Um, Time-sensitive go- goods sat spoiling in a rail yard sounds uh, a bit familiar. Yeah. To, to and I think if we broaden it out, I want to highlight the work of my good friend Tom Spain here, who studied the transition in the food industry from road to rail, wait a minute, rail to road even, yeah, from about 1919 to 1975. His thesis is available to download anybody. Um, but he has pointed out that one of the problems is that the rails, the railway sort of expected the brewers, or not the brewers, he didn't study brewery, but manufacturers to sort of partly pay for special arrangements. and They, they weren't very attentive um, transport suppliers. Yeah. So, um, right, here's St. P. Okay, so of course everybody knows the the story. the the uh, The space under the station it was used for beer, and as I have pointed out in a recent video on my own YouTube channel, um, there's a plug coming it, later, everyone. Don't worry. Yeah, it it wasn't Bass. Um, it was other breweries such as Imcoop and the Burton Brewery uh, Company. And oh, and I should say. Uh, Thomas was the person, and to give him his full credit, who who started thinking about the idea of supply chain governance mm-hmm. in the oil industry. So, you know, footnote, quote, etc. But Bass had uh, Bass actually had a, a warehouse on the canal and the northern goods yard, and of St Pancras. So St Pancras had a northern goods yard, but underneath you had these beers, and they would have a hydraulic lift that was actually. Um, would take the beer down um, and that was outside, just outside the station and, and the beer train would come into the station, would back each of these wagons individually or maybe three of them onto a, uh, onto a hydraulic lift and take them down. And underneath the pancreas, there were tracks and wagon turntables. There was a whole, you know, arrangement oh, for pl- it. This syst- yeah, this intricate system of yeah. little mini tur- wagon turntables and all sorts to get everything where yeah. they needed to go. Yeah, so Gareth, I think the next one's pertinent as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, there we go, yeah. Yeah, so this is the side of St Pancras. Now it's, of course, entrance to like the Eurostar terminal. But that's, as you see, um, it's got on the side, it's got um, uh, Burton Brewery Company, India Pale Ale and Burton Ale Stores. Remember our folk in uh, Stovepipe Hats, very pleased about that name. Yeah, so it's... It's... Um, it's uh just clearly showing that it wasn't bass and i mean bass maintained 600 horses at st pancras and i think the in- interesting uh no so simon's ask is the yard the home to the british library no that was the Summerstown depot that was put up in the 1880s the one i'm talking is further north sorry gareth i've, I've chipped no, in right. we've got questions appearing that's not appeared for me yet yeah oh really okay um but the um Bass maintains 600 horses, and what's interesting is it's easy to think about the railborne part, but actually if we're tracing the the, the movement of the barrel, um, it moves on into Bass's merchants, agents, whatever. Bass didn't own many, you know, it, 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 it had a large free trade. So, um, yeah, so that's just the side of St. Pancras. That's just the side of St. P. And, uh, yeah, it looks... 
both the same and quite different to that now. Uh, yeah, it'd be yeah. quite interesting. Yeah, I quite like the aesthetic. It'd be quite nice if they put if they put like Eurostar or like international travel in big in big uh, Helvetica just to annoy um just to annoy Double Arrow just in Helvetica ah. just above everything. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, right. Okay. So next picture. Got, uh, next picture. How are we doing? Me... What time is it? Nineteen forty four. Okay. Right. So I just I just want to quickly address Matt's question on. It's did much beer go over canal. Yes, before the railways, but actually, um, the first beer to come into St Pancras for bass came via um, canal. Was the railway wasn't open in 1865, yeah, yeah. and uh, the bass warehouse was right on the Regent's Canal. And I think actually brewers tend to look at where they can get the best option. Um, it, 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 they looked to get the best option. So, for example, Whitbread was sending... Uh, Whitbread was interesting, and actually the bottle, the Worthington's bottle, is interesting. So towards the late 19th century, you get a development of bottled beer. Um, it's it's there for export. There's bits of it, but bottled beer already explodes in the late 19th century. And the London brewer, Whitbread, is the largest beer bottler in the world. And it does this through a very modern-looking distribution system. Most breweries would bottle their beer... and uh, Sorry, brew their beer, send it to a bottler, so handing it over to a third party who would mm -hmm. bottle it, sending it to the merchant. And that's that entails certain problems because, of course, in this period, there is complaints about adulteration of beer. Bottled beer is particularly seen as adulterating, so either the bottler or the merchant or whoever would, would might adulterate it. What Whitbread does is it takes... So Bass used uh, 16 different bottles. 16, I'll say that. I probably can't. It's a large number of bottlers in London to bottle their beer in London. But Whitbread decides a different approach. They decide to bottle their beer themselves. So firstly, they extend the governance of the supply chain forward into mm, the bottle. So they're grabbing... Yeah, yeah. But what they do is they use a PR campaign effectively to prove uh, Mike Heller uh, is a great fantastic academic he's written this article about PR and saying well it's, it's an interwar post-war phenomenon it was started in um, World War One because of the, I think actually we could trace the elements the sort of threads back to the 1870s but anyway um, Bottled beer comes forward and they decide to bottle it themselves. So up until about the early 1890s, they, they are bottling at Grays Inn Road. I actually bottle under St Pancras for a short while. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Um, huh. they, they bottle on the Grays Inn Road. But then they decide, actually, so we're sending out 12 cases of beer via... Uh, so, so firstly, I think the context is important. Bottled beer becomes... Uh, uh, more popular because people take beer into the home much more. Uh, there are much more opportunities to bot drink bottled beer. Um, but also, and this is the railways, um, people travel more on excursions. People's income is rising. Their financial, you know, the disposable income is rising. They go and they want a bottle. They, yeah, want they have a bottle. They have a pork pie wrapped in a bit of cloth yeah. and, a, and a bottle of beer. So, and also you get places that the people serving right in holiday resorts who want easily controllable disposable beer, you know, you know, yeah, yeah. Not disposable, but you know what I mean? They want, they want beer when they're not. Yeah. They don't, they don't want to have to set up a, a, a pulling. They, they just want it that they can pick it up, 
nip a lid off and provide it to the customer. Yeah. So in some sense, the railway, and, and this is actually an interesting image because it actually shows how beer is depicted. It's depicted as a mobile object. Mm. It's depicted as a mobile object. It's set in an elite, it's elite setting here on the railway. And of course, a lot of advertisers use this sort of railway, first-class railway carriage aesthetic to um, meet people's aspirations, meet people's, their, you know, their... Oh, if you're drinking, well, it's not a new thing, you know, it's been yeah, around as long as media's been a thing. Uh, yeah, and, and, and marketing historians of 20, 30 years ago would say that, oh, well, this sort of psychology on thinking about the user is a post-World War II phenomenon. No. They start thinking about you know, these very, not perhaps with the complexity and depth that they do now or post-war, but actually some of these sort of concepts about aspirational advertising and and depicting people how they might want to be is a pre-World War One. It comes starts to come through in pre-World War One, But this is interesting because it's very much depicting as a mobile object, aspirational, um, that people can, you're drinking, I think it's White Shield, which still is with us, um, you're going to be in the elite. Yeah. So it's very mobile. So so that's the context. But Whitbread, what they decide to do is they decide to, um, rather than sending out dozen cases, which they were, to actually relocate bottling centres. So they sent the beer in bulk, cheaper, quicker, less uh, opportunity for pilferage yeah. in bulk to um, different depots and then they would bottle it locally and distribute it locally so you have a bulk flow rather than lots of bitty flows to different customers you can reduce your costs and they do reduce their costs and that's why they're able to keep a price point that is quite low on their beer again the railway coming in there as a as a distribution mechanism that you know uh, that that is important to the manner of the pricing at the end point. Yeah. I just point out something that's quite interesting. Is it interesting that they're trying to get the widest appeal here? Um, okay, she's got a half pint, but they're showing both. They're showing both the man and the woman, the, the husband and the wife, or whatever it happens yes. to be. They're both drinking the beer. Why? Why, yeah. why cut off half your audience? It's quite interesting. I, yeah. it's interesting that she hasn't got like I don't know, like a glass of wine or something separately. Everyone's drinking beer. Yeah, and I think that that comes from the idea. So, so the pub was very much considered a male domain. Mm. Um, it was a masculine space, um, and I, I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not. I'm going to caveat this with saying I'm, I'm not totally up on the sort of conceptions of the pub. I'm, you know, more about the brewing. But it's masculine space, whereas these spaces were were sort of everybody was in them. Mm. So it's more about, I think this is about aspirational to an aspirational middle class, which is coming through in terms of, especially a sort of London audience where you've got a lot of clerical workers around London um, uh, who, who look at this and they think, well, if I save up, I could have a nice, you know. So. Yeah, grab but, the first class and go up to, you know, go up to Scarborough or something, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. So. Right, so, anyway, next, so next slide. So, yeah. Ah, so Gareth loves this place, but he doesn't know it. This is under the big old Newcastle Central. Ah, is this under Newcastle East Junction? Yeah. Or close to it? This is Whitbread's store in the early 20s. Ah. And they used, uh, so they used um, 
Whitbread tended to use places local to the railway for obvious reasons. If you want to reduce your costs, you, um, yeah, you, uh, you ship to the nearby railway locations. The one I love is actually Norwich. So the bottling depot Whitbread had was right on the river near the station. But they actually used to ship the beer up by coastal shipper. And they didn't use the railway that much. They shipped it up by coastal shipper and uh, bottled it on their depot. But what that actually also gave them was access to the MNGN station, the Midland Great Northern station, so they could ship it north. They distributed it by rail from Norwich rather than put, took it in by rail because coastal shipper was still quite competitive on bulk, bulk flows in the so 90s. So this is basically like join the dots, sort of um, yeah. skipping around the coast kind of barges and things with a tug. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, so to give you an, a, a sort of uh, a bit of a perspective on this, um, about 50%, I'm going to say 50% of all coal brought into London in 1910 was brought in by coastal shipper. Oh, really? Yeah, so a variety of different sizes of merchant vessel just skipping along the coast. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's getting dark in London, is it? It's, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the sun's setting it's here. Nice. Well. It's nice out there, isn't it, everyone? It's a good job we're able to be free and outside. So I'm now drinking, as back in hot days, ordinary bitter. Oh, lovely. I like the cans on them. Oh, yeah, they're good. In fact, that's the guy who invented the Burton Brewing Company's name. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So is this a picture? Are these just dozens and dozens of Nuki Browns? <laughs> no, it's probably Whitbread Pale. Um, oh, that's their biggest seller, so... Oh, that is their seller. Yeah, that's true. Oh, that's, a sh that's a shame. I, it's... um. It's a really so, great picture. I mean, it's quite atmospheric. I mean, they've clearly gone in and, and it's, it's a long exposure. I can't imagine it was quite that bright under there. Um, depends. Yeah, we had electric lighting. If you had electric yeah, lighting, it'd be fine. So. I'm sure what I know. Uh, it's, yeah. Well, okay. All I, mean, I can they, do is they, think they, about... They um, developed this sort of very extended... Like the railways in some, in some ways. They developed this very extended... Um, system structure which became quite hierarchical which came there were inspectors for cleanliness and one of the things actually to push against the adulteration thing that they they keep professing is that because we control everything we can ensure cleanliness ah. of our product of our spaces you won't be adulterated you won't be um yeah that's a side note on brewing industry but you know um Right, uh, excellent. Right, okay. Do we have another? Well, let's go and. Ah, yes. Okay. Right. Okay. This so is, let's this start. Is let's start talking about road, because road. We've got. Oh well, we can run over a little bit, can't we, Gareth? Oh yeah. We. Uh, if if anyone doesn't want us to run over, uh, say now. No, I'm joking. You have no input into this. We're probably going to run over everyone, and none of you seemed to mind last time. Yeah. So, the interesting thing about road transport is that the brewers are the biggest users of road transport um available uh sorry uh, in, in britain before, one of the biggest users before the first world war now we're talking steam motors we are talking petrol motors towards the end because of course there were certain limitations on power and i was very interested david has asked a question about uh beaching cuts remove too much of distribution make you know to avoid road transport um, I'm going to say this now, the breweries were using road transport and the biggest users before the First World War. Yeah, yeah. Many of the reasons we're going to 
so that's Whitbread Steam Wagon in the southwest somewhere. I think I said to where it was. But um, the breweries, the thing is, even when the railway network was in place, the breweries in the 20s and 30s start going over quite extensively. You know, the local breweries, the, the, the big regionals, and uh, the so, so the Burton breweries stayed with the railways a long time. But your local brewery, firstly, let's not get ahead of ourselves because a lot of breweries were still distributing locally by horse and drag. Yeah, yeah. And the, the motor vehicle fits very well into their systems because you have two outward, you have two flows. You have outward the beer and you have inward the empties. So at no point is your vehicle uneconomically employed. Yeah. But even in the early period, and this is where I differ with Terry. Uh, Terry and Gervish and Richard Wilson's book is they say, well, you can't compare what the road was doing to the horse and dray. I think you can because the brewers themselves are making it. And one of the things that the uh, beer, um, the the brewers do is they increasingly use road because it allows them to extend their range. Uh, the technological things they can't really do the sort of stopping the pubs along the way. They have to do the sort of longer flows because starting up and whatever but brewers are very alive to the possibility of road before the first world war so it's that early. 19... i just yeah so i mean that's a hunking looking vehicle they've got going on there yeah. like an arctic truck um i'm loving this sort of sergeant major looking character in the yeah. left of shot he's got quite the mustache hasn't he yeah well and also yes. why has he got the whole truck on a lead like, i think <laughs> just... maybe they're it's a steam wagon so they might be filling out with water Ah, okay. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, okay. But the the thing is that in 20s and 30s, road is displacing horse and drays quite considerably. Um, And for a lot of the more regional brewers, they are actually... uh, so, So a good example is a brewer who I can't recall the name of the brewer, but he was in Sunderland. It was in Sunderland. And in about 1910, they were delivering 14 miles away to Anfield Plain on the basis that the railway could not ensure the delivery that they wanted. Um, they, 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 couldn't, they couldn't secure the delivery. Yeah. They couldn't make sure that it got there on time when they wanted. And there's this great quote from Commercial Motor Magazine where they follow a brewer's dray, and I think it's Shepherd Neem in, in Kent, and uh, they followed the motor lorry uh, in commercial motor, we have to be careful because it's a pro-road publication. Um, so we have to be a bit cautious about the glowing reviews. But it says, <laughs> this this publican says, well, when the railways delivered it, I never knew what time it would be here. But I know when, you know, when the brewery delivers it direct. And so the, the, the motor vehicle offers a, a security the other breweries, uh, other the railway just can't and doesn't provide. It feels very much like an extension. You talked about the fact that they were attempting through various means to get control over the various arms of that quite complicated-looking supply chain. This feels like a natural extension to that, so you can understand yeah. why that was happening. Yeah. Did the railways did the railways respond in any way, or did they just sort of shrug their shoulders and go, "Ah, well, what can we do?" Well, I. Well, we saw there that the pictures between the 1890s and 1920s, 30s 
uh, didn't really change much. Mm. Uh, I have found one evidence of the Great Eastern Railway having a special uh, beer wagon. Special is is a charitable phrase. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, they took a regular wagon and drilled holes in it to get extra airflow. <laughs> I don't. I mean, I haven't personally studied my my, my research project was pre fourteen period, um, but I I know enough to say that the the railways didn't really do much. I mean, you get the first tanks come through uh, you know the sort of beer tanks in the in the in the sorry say just post-war period yeah. and actually Whitbread um very the br starts off the second world war offering um tankers so road rail tankers so you get uh, and so actually in your your intro image that's a tanker oh yes yeah, yeah, yeah. but these are for the long distance bolt flows and actually on local delivery it had already lost that even before beaching to a large extent um, and actually, road usage. Once we get past rationing, once we get petrol rationing after the Second World War, the massive drop off, even in Bass's operation, very rail orientated, the massive drop off comes in the late fifties, early sixties, before the beaching cuts. And by eight, uh, sorry, eighteen, by the end of the sort of nineteen seventeen, if I recall, it's later, but it, it, it starts dropping off quite considerably just before beaching, Bass's big bulk flows. And they, they stop in the rail. They stop sending stuff by rail in 1969, I think. So it's the, the, the issue is beaching is always an interesting sort of a very important point in railway history. But actually a lot of the trends can be traced back to before the First World War, mm. especially in brewing, because you've got here a picture of a, a motor vehicle delivering beer and the brewers are there's this great quote in the architect the architect magazine from about 1917 basically saying it's not a case of if the railways are supplanted it's when and the railways have very very um very interesting sort of you know they have all these points at which they alienate uh people against um, the railways, uh, sorry, about, you know, so 1911 strike, brewers are talking about that as a sort of seize up. Oh, if we controlled our own flows, we could not, you know. Yep. 1913 rates increase. 1926 strike. 1955 ASLES strike. 1957 rates increase. So you've got all these points at which the uh, railways as a third party are increasingly um, uh, sort of pushing against their customers in some yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're, they're doing see. themselves absolutely no favours. Yeah, I mean, BR in the 1960s then goes for to lose wagon load freight. It tries, you know, under beaching. Um, and that's, that's not, but that's a, an end point. I'm not going to argue it because I, I'm, I'm you know, uh, but it some it could be possibly suggested. I'm going to caveat that heavy that that was actually a bit of a nail in the coffin to a process that could be going on for a long time. Yeah, yeah. So um, I think I think it's easy to see beaching as a as an important point, and it is. It's very important, but I think that broader context is important to acknowledge. 
Um, so we've got, oh crikey, we've got all sorts of things. We've got David Shepard wondering whether the post office railway, so you know the little underground thing that yeah, Tim yeah. and Samir Ahmed travelled around on, um, wondering if that could be used to fire beer up into the buildings around central London. No, um, I don't know. No, it couldn't because there's a museum in the way. Oh, no, Gareth, come on. <laughs> I want that to happen. <laughs> Why you just press a button and, you just, and a beer just kind of just goes into your hand like that. That would be terrific. Yeah. Um, yeah, Elon Musk might have a, have a, a number on that. <laughs> anyway. Um, oh, so Romy Adekrat asks if we can go back to the slide with the diagram of the whole system um, and talk about which flows would work with rail now. We're kind of pushed for time, Romy Adekrat, but we will do it for, we'll do it for 30 seconds because um, I think that's the last slide. So if we look at this one, so very quickly, David, how much of that did rail have an involvement in? All of it. All of it. All of it. Yeah. I I would be. You see, the problem is, it's it's not so much the fact I, I I'm not going to profess to be a, a, a you know modern logistics expert. So you know, I I would suggest that the bulk flows might still work. In a lot of ways, I mean, we we could get heavy goods objects. You know, I I don't know. I don't I don't think it's it's that it's the last mile problem. It's the how do you solve the the when when the beer or the the hops or the end up at a rail depot and take to a rail depot. How do you and one of the advantages motor lorries. I mean, I think this is why his, studying history is useful because you can see the advantages people see. And the advantage of rail, uh, of road over rail, is immediately acknowledged by the brewers in nineteen, you know, nineteen tens, nineteen hundreds. Last mile, they can get it direct much quicker and much more reliably. And that's, so that's the, sorry. No, no, no. I was going to say, and that's what's interesting about the future is that if we start rolling out, like in central London, you start rolling out these ultra low emission zones, the HGVs that we've previously relied on for last mile can't run into the city and can't do the last mile anymore. At which point, the usefulness of rails' energy efficiency become kind of lifts again. It doesn't. It doesn't cancel out all the benefits that you still get with road, but all of a sudden, you you do start getting rid of some of those last mile benefits for the end. You you know. So so that that there is a bit of a swing coming into the you know in, over the next ten years as we see more ultra low emission zones appearing in other cities around the UK and internationally. There might be a bit of a switch back to. Seeing rail managing some more of these bulk uh, kind of uh, bulk deliveries, and you'll start needing more um, logistics operations within the centre of cities. So um, yeah, yeah. don't expect Manchester's Trafford Park to be going anywhere anytime soon. It's an incredibly usefully placed logistics I, operation, and likewise, London actually Network Rail are currently working with various stakeholders in London to locate new logistics terminals for rail yeah. freight within central London because actually the I, demand I, is starting to climb. I, I wonder, Gareth, if 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 we think about sort of, I mean, what we're going through at the moment, coronavirus and all that. After it, rail travel might be lowered on some routes, possibly. Possibly. I'm asking you a question here: Is there a chance that actually there will be train paths freed up for more, should we say, localized parcel traffic or stuff like that? I think that you'll yeah. What you might find is it, particularly if we have a leveling of peak tra travel, or or perhaps a normalisation between peak and off peak, 
you might find, um, and this is partly related to current developments you were seeing in rail freight and, and micro logistics within rail freight, with some very interesting stuff happening. Um, where people realizing that actually having freight sections of, of passenger stock or uh, running former passenger stock uh, HSTs or even electric multiple units for freight is quite a good idea because you can run it in amongst passenger services. Yeah. As we see a move towards kind of um, uh, services, service patterns that are more simple, more homogenous, if you like. So all the sort of services do the same thing, passenger uh, services. You might see more freight slotting in amongst it. So you might yeah. see a move towards more kind of small sized um, freight. I, I'd, I'd recommend looking up Intermodality UK on Twitter to see some stuff about HSTs being used for fast rail freight delivered into city centres. Um, there's quite a lot going on on that front. Rail freight that isn't bulk haul, uh, or certainly rail freight that isn't coal, um, is, is seeing a renaissance. Okay. We're seeing a renaissance in construction materials being moved around by rail. We're seeing a renaissance in um, even in some bulk haul like stone. But certainly the main growth for rail freight is in, is in uh, containerized um, sort, of, um, uh, sort of small goods, consumer goods, massive yeah. spike in demand. And if the railways can show that it works, uh, particularly during this virus, actually, the railways are coming to their own. If the railways can show that they can do it well, um, the, 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 the suppliers, the people uh, who are using rail freight, the customers, essentially, the railways customers are queuing up. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's this wider picture, environmental picture. I suppose there's a whole adaptability question about how the institutional norms might actually... Yeah. <sighs> but everything's every been taken up, hasn't has it? Its, the, the, the every institution has its baggage, so... Yeah, yeah. But yeah. the world has anyway. changed. And, I mean, by the time this lifts, you know, September, October, before we're going to see, probably before we see a return to normality, or at least a lift of lockdown in September... Um, the world will have changed. It was just we're just gonna we've we've had a ch we've had change thrust upon us, um, and it's going to be interesting once the dust settles to see what that looks like. And, and rail freight needs to be right there for all the reasons that everyone in the chat is saying. I think everyone in the chat acknowledges that rail freight is good. It's a good thing, um, you know. Uh, and if you have electric vehicles that for the last mile, you know, little electric milk floats or whatever it happens to be, then then all the yeah. better. And I mean, um, I do I do I do wonder actually as a historian how how I can to use a very academic word, operationalize. Oh, yeah, very nice. Operationalize, yeah, very good. Uh, operationalize history, our understanding of history to understand how, how, how we can use past things to not... History doesn't repeat. It There's echoes. But, yeah. but what can we use from history? My supervisor, Colin Delaval, Deval, sorry, had a, a phrase, usable history rather than necessarily direct learning. You know, how can we use understandings of the past um, to inform our knowledge of the present rather than say, well, this happened in the past. It must happen in the future. But you know. anyway. Yeah, right. So we're late by 10 minutes. Sorry, everyone. You're all ever so patient. I hope this is still interesting stuff. Um, right. So let's uh, let's go back to the presentation again. Here we are. Uh, yeah, it's an advert. It's a pl it's plug time. Dr. David Turner, you. So I do I do a number of things. I do a, if you've got kids, I do a Q. I used to be a library manager and a library employee for seventeen years, part time. But yeah, so I do a Q and A for kids on British Railway history. The next one probably be next Tuesday. Do tracks through time, which is my 
not particularly scheduled but occasional long form series and then i do a new thing called on track truths which will be little bits of history of railways which are sort of slightly dispelling the old myth um and i've got one on beer so look at my youtube channel yeah that the, the um i particularly i mean they're all brilliant and like i'd recommend just have them on enjoy them um however you want to they're just in, it's just interesting stuff it's just adds to the uh you know the the mythos but also somewhat dis, dismantles particularly my favorite is on track truths it protect it dismantles the mythos about railways um, which is something that I know both of us like to do. We don't, well, my, we don't particularly like one, commonly two, held myths, do we, David? We yeah. do our best. We're a bit like the QI elves. We well, try to dismantle some of those myths. My next one is about actually how uh, people didn't like the railways, particularly in the interwar years. It wasn't <laughs> the- <laughs> cheers, cheers, cheers. <laughs> um, excellent. Yeah, so do go and follow uh, Dr. David Turner. Actually, I've got another plug for you, which is, if I can find it, where is it? Uh... It's excellent, and it's in the latest Rail magazine, uh, which you oh. can pick up on shelves when you're doing your groceries. Uh, can I find the page? No, I cannot quickly. Yeah, yeah, here. Who's this? Look, look at this. Ha- here we are. This yeah, so here. I did, I did this is. article. It took a lot of research, and there's a, uh, a, a, a on it, but it's, um, it's 1918 good. Epidemic and railways, which is maybe a separate conversation at some point. But um, really interesting stuff about how railways dealt with de- dealt with the previous mass pandemic. It's just very, very interesting. Absolutely. Thank you, Gareth. I'd recommend it. Um, Always read Gareth Dennis's stuff in rail as well. It's excellent. I'm, I've not been in there much recently. I, I've actually been phenomenally busy with day jobs. Stuff. I know, uh, I know. Yeah, but you, know, you right. have the recent one. Don't, don't worry, Paul, uh, who is Paul, Richard and Nigel, all of whom are my bosses. If ever you do watch this, I promise I'm going to get you that list of things and more writing soon. Honest. So okay, can I just, just follow David yes. on Twitter. He's can I just put a plug uh, up? For, so this is the book uh, is the book I was referring to. If you want a good history of brewing, that's the one. OK. Uh, British Brewing, wait, hold it up. British Brewing Industry, 1832 to 1980. By Richard Wilson and Terence Gervish. Marvelous. Uh, I am, um, embarrassingly, t- Terry uh, actually tweeted me today, and all I could come up with was a re- I responded to him with a smiley. So uh, okay, that's well, my embarrassing wait, thing today. He also did this, but, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> British, right, yeah, anyway, go on. Follow, yeah. Right, where was I? So, uh, sorry. We're so Same. late already. 2013. Yeah. Sorry, everyone. Um, uh, yes, have done. I've got it full screen. Oh, was I not on full? Oh, I wasn't, was I? Wait a minute. I'm going to do this. No one can read it. Get everyone. So this is Rail Magazine. It's good. Full of really good stuff. Congrats to the, the team are working so hard to get this out. Um, no. And what I was saying Congrats. is that everyone should open. Everyone should get it because there's an excellent article on, if I can get it in. How, oh gosh, how railway staff were conduits and victims of a pandemic. And it is excellent. And it's by uh, the Right Honourable uh, Dr. David Turner. There he is. Thank you. Um, it's good. Read it. So let's go back to full. There we go. Right. Next. Uh, oh, right. Okay. So this came out last week. Go and watch it if, if, if you like. Um, also, these are going to be the, the, the next one, which I've yet, weirdly, I did a live stream um, last week. Which I haven't done the audio for episode for lesson three of the permanent way yet, which means that I'm going to be referring to a live stream that's oh, it's all got a bit meta. Anyway, that's fine. That'll be coming out on Friday at six. Um, people seem to enjoy them. 
I'm trying to make them shorter, but so far they've bas both basically been about 20 minutes long, sorry. And also I've made my bed and I have to line it and I've put a gag at the start of every single one as well, which I now have to start writing <laughs> comedy for every single one, which was a mistake. Um, they're on Fridays. Uh, this is this. Why have I put this here? Oh, yeah, this. Okay, this is out of date. I should have put another picture here. So, so far, every, there's a vote on Twitter. Go vote. Um, between APT or the Morpeth Curve <laughs> for next week's Rail Natter. And everyone's kind of going towards APT. Um, yeah. Uh, so, is if it, you want to hear about the Morpeth Curve, because you're going to at some point. Uh, if you want to hear about that next week rather than APT, then a vote. If you want to hear about APT, oh, the, the, David, you'll hate this slash love it. It's an alternate history of if the APT succeeded, what what would the world look? What would Britain's railways look like? Uh, so I'm making that up, and it's not we worry about for peer review. <laughs> so, uh, lastly, but by no means leastly, um, oh yeah, the, 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 I have a full time day job, but so all the time that I spend doing these things, it's the same with David. We're both very busy. Um, any little, every little helps. So if, if they're, are you poking me in the ear? <laughs> yeah, no. um, yeah, these help. So thanks. I've just started a paypal.me. So paypal.me slash Gareth Dennis also works. Um, these really help. It just means I can buy kit and it kind of justifies me when I take, uh, un, you know, I take unpaid leave essentially on top of my annual leave to do some of this stuff. Um, so anything, any, any, every little helps basically. So thanks for that. Um, oh yeah. Thanks everyone. <laughs> We're only 17 We're minutes off. beyond schedule. You've all been brilliant. Everyone's here. Who have we got? We've got so many good people. People talking about beaching. We're going to talk so much about beaching in the future. Jared, thanks, thanks for that. Um, I'll know unique and interesting stuff about Morpeth, Morpeth Curve. Yep, that's true. APT. Great. Lots of everyone on the chat. Thanks for joining us. You've been great. Some thank really you, good yeah. questions. Dave, love thank you so much for joining us. That's been terrific. Have you enjoyed it? We'll do, come back and do history time again. Yeah, I think so. It's been really, it's been brilliant. Um, yeah, thanks, 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 David, and thanks everyone. And um, we're waving. Cheerio. Adios. Hasta luego. Bye 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 everyone. Bye bye.